the existence and attributes of God by Stephen Tarnock, the holiness of God, who is like unto thee, Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Exodus 15, verse 11. This verse is one of the loftiest descriptions of the majesty and excellency of God in the whole scripture. It is part of Moses' triumphant song. After a great and real and typical victory, in a womb of which all the deliverances of the church were couched, it is the first song upon holy record, and it consists of gratulatory and prophetic manner. It casts a look backward to what God did for them in their deliverance from Egypt, and a look forward to what God shall do for the church in future ages. That deliverance was but a rough draft to something more excellent to be wrought towards the closing up of the world, when its plague shall be poured out upon the anti-Christian powers, which should revive the same song of Moses and the church, as fitted so many ages before for such a scene of affairs, Revelation 15, verses 2 and 3. It is observed, therefore, that many words in this song are put in the future tense, noting a time to come, and the very first word, verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song, implying that it was composed and calculated for the celebrating some greater action of God, which was to be wrought in the world. Upon this account, some of the Jewish rabbins, from the consideration of this remark, asserted the doctrine of the resurrection to be meant in this place that Moses and those Israelites should rise again to sing the same song. For some greater miracles God should work, and greater triumphs he should bring forth, exceeding those wonders at their deliverance from Egypt. It consists of, first, a preface. Verse 1, I will sing unto the Lord. Secondly, a historical narration of manner of fact. Verses 3 and 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, as he cast into the Red Sea, which he solely ascribes to God. In verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy, which he does prophetically as respecting something to be done in after times, or further for the completing of that deliverance, or, as others think, respecting their entering into Canaan. For the words in these two verses are put in a future tense. The manner of the deliverance is described in verse 8. The flood stood upright as in heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. In the ninth verse, he magnifies the victory from the vainglory and security of the enemy. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, and so on. In verses 16 and 17, he prophetically describes the fruit of this victory and the influence it shall have upon those nations by whose confines they were to travel to the promised land. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They shall be as steel, as a stone, till your people pass over which you have purchased. The phrase of this in the 17th and 18th verses 
seems to be more magnificent than to design only the bringing the Israelites to the earthly Canaan, but seems to respect a gathering his redeemed ones together, to place them in a spiritual sanctuary which he had established, in which the Lord should reign forever and ever, without any enemies to disturb his royalty. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Verse 18. The Prophet in the midst of his historical narrative, seems to be in an ecstasy and breaks out in a stately exaltation of God in the text. Who is like unto you, Lord, among the gods? And interrogations are, in Scripture, the strongest affirmations or negations. It is here a strong affirmation of the incomparableness of God and a strong denial of the worthiness of all creatures to be partners with him in the degrees of his excellency. It is a preference of God before all creatures in holiness, to which the purity of creatures is but a shadow. In deserving of reverence and veneration, he being fearful in praises. The angels cover their faces when they adore him in his particular perfections. Amongst the Gods among the idols of the nation, say some, others say it is not to be found that the heathen idols are ever dignified with the title of strong or mighty, as the word translated gods imports, and therefore understand it of the angels or other potentates of the world, or rather exclusively of all that are noted for, or can lay claim to the title of strength and might upon the earth or in heaven. God is so great and majestic that no creature can share with him in his praise. Fearful in Praises Various are the interpretations of this passage. To be reverenced in praises. His praise ought to be celebrated with a religious fear. Fear is a product of his mercy as well as of his justice. He has forgiveness that he may be feared. Psalm 130 verse 4 or fearful in praises whom none can praise without amazement at the consideration of his works. None can truly praise him without being affected with astonishment at his greatness. Or fearful in praises whom no mortal can sufficiently praise, since he is above all praise. Whatsoever a human tongue can speak, or an angelical understanding think of the excellency of his nature, and the greatness of his works fall short of the vastness of the divine perfection. A creature's praises of God are as much below the transcendent imminency of God as the meanness of a creature's being is below the eternal fullness of the Creator. A rather fearful or terrible in praises, that is, in a manner of your praise, and the learned Andrew Rebbit concurs with me in this sense, the works of God celebrated in this song were terrible. It was a miraculous overthrow of the strength and flower of a mighty nation. His judgments were severe, as well as his mercy was seasonable. The word signifies glorious and illustrious, as well as terrible and fearful. No man can hear the praise of your name for those great judicial acts without some astonishment at your justice. The stream in your holiness the spring in those mighty works. This seems to be the sense of the following words, doing wonders, fearful in the manner of your praise, 
they be in wonders which you have done among us and for us. Doing wonders, congealing the waters by a wind, to make them stand like walls for the rescue of the Israelites, and melting them by a wind for the overthrow of the Egyptians, are prodigies that challenge the greatest adorations of that mercy which delivered the one, and that justice which punished the other, and the arm of that power in which he effected both his gracious and righteous purposes. Whence observe that the judgments of God upon his enemies, as well as his mercies to his people, are matters of praise. The perfections of God appear in both. Justice and mercy are so linked together in the acts of providence that one cannot be forgotten whilst the other is acknowledged. He is never so terrible as in the assemblies of his saints and the deliverance of them. As the creation was erected by him for his glory, so all the acts of his government are designed for the same end, and his creatures deny him his due, if they acknowledge not his excellent and whatsoever dreadful, as well as pleasing garbs that appears in the world, his terror, as well as his righteousness appears when he is a God of salvation. By terrible things and righteousness will you answer us, O God of our salvation. But the expression I pitch upon in a text to handle is glorious in holiness. He is magnified or honorable in holiness. So the word is translated in Isaiah 42 verse 21. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Your holiness has shone forth admirably in this last exploit against the enemies and oppressors of your people. The holiness of God is his glory, as his grace is his riches. Holiness is his crown, and his mercy is his treasure. This is the blessedness and nobleness of his nature. It renders him glorious in himself and glorious to his creatures did understand anything of this lovely perfection. Holiness is a glorious perfection belonging to the nature of God. Hence he is in scripture styled, often, the Holy One. The Holy One of Jacob. The Holy One of Israel. And oftener entitled, Holy than Almighty. And set forth by the spirit of his dignity more than by any other attribute. This is more affixed as an epithet to his name than any other. You never find it expressed, his mighty name, or his wise name, but his great name, and most of all, his holy name. This is his greatest title of honor. In this does the majesty and venerableness of his name appear. When the sinfulness of Sennacherib is aggravated, the Holy Ghost takes a rise from this attribute in Second Kings 19, verse 22. You have lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel. Not against the wise one of Israel, or the mighty, but against the Holy One of Israel. Is that in which the majesty of God was most illustrious? It is upon this account he is called light, as impurity is called darkness. Both in this sense are opposed to one another. 
He is a pure and unmixed light, free from all blemish in his essence, nature, and operations. Number one, heathens have owned it. Proclus calls him the undefiled governor of the world. The poetical transformation of their false gods and the extravagancies committed by them was, in the account of the wisest of them, an unholy thing to report and hear. And some vindicate Epicurus from the atheism in which it was commonly charged that he did not deny the being of God. But those adulterous and contentious deities the people worshipped, which were practices unworthy and unbecoming the nature of God, hence they asserted that virtue was an imitation of God, and a virtuous man bore a resemblance to God. If virtue were a copy from God, a greater holiness must be owned in the original. And when some of them were at a loss how to free God from being the author of sin in the world, they ascribed the birth of sin to Mantor and run into an absurd opinion, fancying it to be uncreated, that thereby they might exempt God from all mixture of evil, so sacred with them was the conception of God as a holy God. Number two, the absurdest heretics have owned it, the Manichees and Marcionites, that though evil came by necessity, yet would solve God's being the author of it by asserting two distinct eternal principles. One, the original of evil, as God was the fountain of good. So rooted was the notion of this divine purity that none would ever slander goodness itself with that which was so disparaging to it. Number three, the nature of God cannot rationally be conceived without it. Though the power of God be the first rational conclusion drawn from the sight of his works, wisdom, the next, from the order and connection of his works, purity must result from the beauty of his works, that God cannot be deformed by evil who has made everything so beautiful in its time. The notion of a God cannot be entertained without separating from him whatsoever is impure and bespotting both in his essence and actions. Though we conceive him infinite in majesty, infinite in essence, eternal in duration, mighty in power, and wise and inimitable in his counsels, merciful in his proceedings with men, and whatsoever other perfections may dignify so sovereign a being, yet if we conceive him destitute of this excellent perfection, and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make him but an infinite monster, and sully all those perfections we ascribed to him before. We rather own him a devil than a god. It is a contradiction to be god and to be darkness, or to have one mode of darkness mixed with his light. It is a less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no god, the other a deformed, unlovely, and a detestable god. Plutarch said not amiss that he should count himself less injured by that man that should deny that there was such a man as Plutarch than by him that should affirm that there was such a one indeed, but he was a debauched fellow, a loose and vicious person. It is a less wrong to God to discard any acknowledgments of his being and account him nothing, 
than to believe him to exist, but imagine a base and unholy deity. He that says, God is not holy, speaks much worse than he that says, there is no God at all. Let these two things be considered. Number one, if any, this attribute has an excellency above his other perfections. There are some attributes of God we prefer because of our interest in them and the relation they bear to us as we esteem his goodness before his power and his mercy in which he relieves us before his justice in which he punishes us. As there are some we more delight in because of the goodness we receive by them, so there are some that God delights to honor because of their excellency. None is sounded out so loftily with such solemnity and so frequently by angels to stand before his throne as this. Where do you find any other attribute troubled in the praises of it is this? Isaiah 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation 4, verse 8. The four beasts rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, and so on. His power or sovereignty is Lord of hosts is but once mentioned, but with eternal repetition of his holiness. Do you hear in any angelical song any other perfection of the divine nature thrice repeated? Where do we read of the crying out, eternal, 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 or faithful, 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 Lord God of hosts? Whatsoever attribute is left out, this God would have to fill the mouths of angels and bless his spirits forever in heaven. Number two, he singles it out to swear by. Psalm 89, verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie. And to David, in Amos 4.2, the Lord will swear by his holiness. He twice swears by his holiness, once by his power, once by all when he swears by his name, Jeremiah 44, verse 26. He lays here his holiness to pledge for the assurance of his promise is the attribute most dear to him, most valued by him, as though no other could give an assurance parallel to it in this concern of an everlasting redemption, which is there spoken of. He that swears, swears by a greater than himself. God having no greater than himself, swears by himself, and swearing here by his holiness seems to equal that single one to all his other attributes, as if he were more concerned in the honor of it than of all the rest. It is as if he should have said, Since I have not a more excellent perfection as whereby than that of my holiness, I lay this to pawn for your security, and bind myself by that which I will never part with. Were it possible for me to be stripped of all the rest, it is a tacit imprecation of himself. If I lie to David, let me never be counted holy or thought righteous enough to be trusted by angels or men. This attribute he makes most of. Number three, it is his glory and beauty. Holiness is the honor of the creature. Sanctification and honor are linked together. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 4. 
much more is it the honor of God. It is the image of God in the creature, Ephesians 4.24. When we take the picture of a man, we draw the most beautiful part, the face, which is a member of the greatest excellency. When God would be drawn to the life, as much as can be, in the spirit of his creatures, he is drawn in this attribute as being the most beautiful perfection of God and most valuable with him. Power is his hand and arm, omniscience, his eye, mercy, his bowels, eternity, his duration, but holiness is his beauty, Second Chronicles 20 verse 21, should praise the beauty of holiness. In Psalm 27 4, David desires to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire into his holy temple, that is, the holiness of God manifested in his hatred of sin and the daily sacrifices. Holiness was the beauty of the temple. Isaiah 46, verse 11, much more the beauty of God that dwelt in the sanctuary. This renders him lovely to all his innocent creatures, though formidable to the guilty ones. A heathen philosopher could call it the beauty of the divine essence and say that God was not so happy by an eternity of life as by an excellency of virtue. And the angel's song intimated to be his glory, Isaiah 6, verse 3. The whole earth is full of your glory, that is, of his holiness and his laws and in his judgments against sin, that being the attribute applauded by them before. Number four, it is his very life. So it is called in Ephesians 4, verse 18, alienated from the life of God, that is, from the holiness of God. Speaking of the opposite to it, the uncleanness and profaneness of the Gentiles, we are only alienated from that which we are bound to imitate. But this is a perfection always set out as a pattern of our actions. Be ye holy, as I am holy. No other is proposed as our copy, alienated from that purity of God, which is as much as his life without which he could not live. If he were stripped of this, he would be a dead God, more than by the lack of any other perfection. His swearing by it intimates as much. He swears often by his own life. As I live, saith the Lord. So he swears by his holiness, as if it were his life, and more his life than any other. Let me not live, or let me not be holy, are all one in his oath. His deity could not outlive the life of his purity.